I wanted to read something that I wrote, I suppose, a month or so ago. Uh, just a little blip, a little blurb. And don't let it shock you. Just let it provoke your own thinking if you can. I'm still racist, chauvinistic, and homophobic. To undo Jim Crow laws, to give women the right to vote, to extend full privileges to the LGBT community. This is not the end of bias, but only the beginning of the work. It is the insidiously hidden, systemic, and subconscious ways that we demean one another, other children of God, that remains our most challenging work. Let us go further into this hard work by honestly, courageously, humbly, and gratefully praying Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and show me if there be any wicked way in me. Surely there is. I listen to David White, the great poet, quite often in any of David's speeches. He always reads the poem or quotes the poem twice. And that was laborious and burdensome for a while until I realized that you don't hear it the first time. So I think I even read through that without hearing it. Hear it again. I am still racist, chauvinistic, and homophobic. To undo Jim Crow laws to give women the right to vote, to extend full privileges to the LGBT community. This is not the end of bias, but only the beginning of the work. It is the insidiously hidden, systemic and subconscious ways that we demean one another, other children of God, that remains our most challenging work. Let us go further into this hard work by honestly, courageously, humbly, and gratefully praying, search me, O God, and show me if there be any wicked way in me. Surely, there still is. Harvard psychologist Mazarin Banaji, a social psychologist, was once approached by an interviewer. Uh, the interviewer was wanting a report or wanting to do an interview, rather, on a body of work that Banaji had been doing that was quite fascinating. Um, Banaji said, I did not even entertain her. I declined the interview immediately because I didn't think much of the magazine that she worked for. As a matter of fact, I thought very little of it because I thought it always consistently portrayed psychological research inaccurately. It was a pop magazine, and I didn't think they did credible work. She said, as I turned to leave the reporter, with the blatant no, clear, the reporter said something that stopped me. The reporter said, you know, I used to be a student at Yale when you were a professor there. And even though I didn't take a course with you, I always wanted to. Banaji said, before I knew it, I had turned around and said, okay, come on over. I'll talk to you. Anyone relate to that kind of interaction? She said, later upon reflecting back to that event, she did the work that social psychologists do. She couldn't just pass over that exchange, but she considered it. And she said, I asked myself, you know, why did I change my mind? 
I still didn't think much of the magazine. And I was even reticent to do anything at all with them, knowing that you know, I could be misquoted, I could be misrepresented at least. But she said the answer was so clear, so obvious. The reporter found a way to make a personal connection with me. And upon making that personal connection, she engaged me and changed my mind. Now, for most of us, this what I just said and what Banaji reported there uh, would have seemed so obvious that it requires no further thought. We would just think, well, of course, we'll help someone with, with whom we have a personal connection. This is just the stuff of how to win friends and influence people, right? Basic stuff. You learn this in elementary school. But for Banaji, as a social psychologist, a critical thinker, it was the start of a psychological exploration into the nature and consequences of favoritism. She began a long body of research into this painful subject that has a very broad spectrum from benign to extremely malignant favoritism. Why do we give some people the kind of extra special treatment that we don't give others? Question again. Why do we give some people the kind of extra special treatment that we don't give others? She wrote a book out of that with um, Anthony Greenwald, who himself is a social psychologist at University of Washington. They collaborated on a book out of their body of research, and the book I would recommend to you, written I think in 2013, Blind Spots, Hidden Biases of Good People. Blind Spots, Hidden Biases of Good People. In the book, she and Greenwald really turn the ways that we think about prejudice on their head. Moving beyond these blatant, recognizable ways that we are biased, prejudicial, hateful against one another, they move to a deeper study of the refined ways, the hidden ways, those places in our soul's retina that literally we lose sight of things, ways that we mistreat one another. Traditionally, Banaji said the way psychologists as well as lay people have looked at this field of prejudice, and all of these isms, racism, genderism, ageism, classism, traditionally the way we've looked at this um, is we look for overt acts of commission. Things that we blatantly do that are obviously racist or gender biased. What do I do? And we throw up our hands and we say, well, I, I don't do those things anymore. I don't go across town and burn down church of someone that doesn't share my religion. I don't use racial or classist epithets against other people. Overt acts of bias that we can recognize as prejudice. Most of us in the West have moved past those things. Some haven't, but to simply focus on that ridiculous caricature all the time is to distract us from the more refined work that all of us still have left to do in our own souls. Far from springing from animosity and hatred, 
Banaji and Greenwald argue in their work that prejudice actually, the body of prejudice that most of us face today and actually most of us still perpetrate stem from unintentional biases, subconscious biases, biases that we wouldn't even overtly recognize nor are very quick to admit, biases that when confronted with we even defensively reject and say, no, that's not me. Banaji said, take my own behavior toward the reporter. And obviously all of this starts in a, in a very benign way, but before you dismiss it, please listen to her to the end. She said, take my own behavior toward the reporter with the Yale connection. The question that begs for me is, what would have made me, in that case, change my mind? What level of connection would it have taken? And, and by personal connection, was the Yale connection really personal? Was it really soul to soul? Or was it class to class? She said, I have to ask myself in those moments, if it would have been a reporter from another Ivy League school, would I have done it? Would an Ivy League school have sufficed? How about a school of acclaim and standard? How about a Stanford or a Wake Forest, a Duke? Maybe it took Yale. Maybe it would have taken an Ivy League school. Maybe it would have just have taken an acclaimed school. How about any university? How about a college degree? This is the kind of refined, thoughtful thinking that we all have to do. What would have made me move in that scenario? And why would that have made me move? Why do we find solidarity with certain people? We know why we don't find solidarity with certain people, but the bigger question now in this refined pursuit is why do we associate and favorably, be, favorably treat some better than others? She said, I did not feel like my decision was a form of prejudice. And yet to some degree it was. Now, immediately, I can feel it. I feel it in my own heart. The pushback is, that kind of favoritism is harmless, even reasonable. We could have a long discussion today if it was that kind of a setting, and I would love just to interact about the question, is that kind of favoritism really harmless? Is that kind of favoritism actually reasonable? In their book, Banaji and Greenwald go on to really make a really strong case that explains a lot about the West, specifically about the modern United States, where increasingly fewer and fewer of us are admitting to holding explicit prejudices. And as we continue to grow as a society, fewer and fewer of us are holding explicit prejudices. And yet, in spite of the fact that fewer of us are admitting to and holding explicit prejudices, wide disparities remain among class and gender and race among us. These two psychologists are actually setting on its head, may be too strong of a term, but they're taking us back to this issue of prejudice and they're asking us to look at it again with an even more critical lens of soul. They use, and I won't take time to go into it all, if you get their book, Blind Spots, Hidden Biases of Good People, you'll, you'll hear all about this. But they, 
they employ a test that's been used for decades, a test that in the beginning was, uh, there was a lot of conjecture about, a lot of criticism, but now in fields of medicine, fields of law, across the board, uh, this test called the Implicit Association Test is highly accepted and highly respected. It measures the speed of people's hidden associations. And, and speed is incredibly important here. Before you have a chance to reflectively think, your knee-jerk response that reveals hidden associations. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, a um, 69-year-old incredibly vivacious woman and she was talking about this new love of her life and as we talked about him and I knew he'd been in her life for several years and there'd been this increasing romance and it's really a lovely story until she told me he was 48 my age and all of you laugh and I promise you if I would reverse the genders it would not have created that kind of laughter. The guys would have reached over and punched one another in the shoulder and said, boy, 69-year-old guy, get him a 48-year-old gal, right? You see the bias? You see the built-in? It's absolutely fine for an older man to be with a younger woman. And of course we would say, we would not be explicit, of course it's fine for a younger guy to go with a woman 21 years older than him, but Geez, really? Hidden blind spots and biases. To which many people would respond, but that's reasonable because of, because why? Why is it reasonable? The implicit association test. Banaji, a quote from her, she said, as I reflect back on my gift to that reporter, I think that kind of act of helping towards people with whom we share some shared group identity, say it slower, I think that kind of act of helping, because every time you choose to act some, every time you choose to help someone, you're choosing not to help someone else because we have limited resources, right? So who we choose includes who we don't choose. I think that kind of act of helping towards people with whom we have some shared group identity is really the modern way in which discrimination likely happens. Another book that mirrors the conclusion of this book, The American Non-Dilemma, it's called. I love the tagline, Racial Inequality Without Racism. The Non-American Dilemma, Racial inequality without racism. A sociologist, Nancy De Tomoso, she asked this question, how is it that few people report feeling racial prejudice while the United States still has enormous disparities? This is her answer and her conclusion. Discrimination today, please hear it, discrimination today is less about treating people from other groups badly. That was the first step out, right? Let's simply quit abusing other groups of people overtly or consciously. But discrimination today is less about treating people from other groups badly and more about giving preferential treatment to people who are part of our in-groups. 
The insidious thing about favoritism is it doesn't feel icky like blatant prejudice does. Of course we don't torch other churches. Of course we don't use those words anymore. Of course we don't tell those jokes anymore. And yet are our souls fully refined and healed in the absence of the negative? Discrimination today is less about treating people from other groups badly. We have thankfully moved past that to a great degree, and yet it still exists among us. But for those of us who have moved past it, to put all of this subject in the basket of those who treat others badly is to miss the continued work that all of us have to do. Those of us who tacitly and subconsciously yield and even support systems and subconscious ways of being that still, that still demean and undermine the worth of every human soul. Discrimination today is less about treating people from other groups badly and more about giving preferential treatment to people who are a part of our in-groups. The insidious thing about favoritism as opposed to blatant forms of prejudice, favoritism doesn't feel icky. It feels like Jim Crow laws above slavery. It's the, it's the evil magnanimity of separate but equal. It is the lesser of two evils, but indeed it is still evil. The insidious thing about favoritism, the cruel thing about favoritism is how it hides in us. It doesn't feel icky. It doesn't carry the immediate and voracious malignancy of other forms of prejudice. As a matter of fact, it, it seems very reasonable. We feel like a great friend when we give a, a buddy a foot in the door to an interview that someone else doesn't have or get. We feel like good parents, Banaji says, when we arrange a class trip for our daughter's class to our place of work. We, we feel like generous people when we give our neighbors extra tickets to a sports game or a show. That's just favoring people that we love and a good bit of that is completely benign but that type of benign behavior that type of innocent reasonable behavior is contiguous to other forms of behavior that are allowing us to hide mistreatment Banaji, Greenwald, De Tomosa, all of those that I've read after in these last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about this subject. They say in this favoring of people, we, we, end up ex we end up strengthening existing patterns of advantage and disadvantage. And the way we end up strengthening these existing patterns of advantage and disadvantage is because most likely our friends, neighbors, and children's classmates are overwhelmingly likely to share our own racial, religious, and socioeconomic backgrounds. So we continue to feed the well that feeds us. When we help someone from one of these in-groups, when we show favoritism to one of these that are connected to us, can we personally justify that? Absolutely. And again, I admit in many cases it is completely reasonable and benign but it butts up against behavior that must be questioned 
And we must begin to at least question when we help someone from one of our in-groups, we must at least stop and say in this moment, this is a good thing, but I must also ask, who am I not helping right now? And I may not help them, I may not decide to help them, but I at least need to be aware in my benevolence who is not the recipient of that and look for consistent patterns in that behavior. And ask myself how those consistent patterns amongst large groups of people continue to entrench and concretize system and patterns of being that leave entire groups of people out. Banaji really brings it home when she tells the story in her book about a friend of hers, a lady named Carla Kaplan, who now is a professor, a, a renowned professor at Northeastern University, but Kaplan and her were both faculty members at Yale as young professors, and Banaji said, I always remember this about Kaplan, she had a passion for quilting. She was always quilting. Sometimes even when she was teaching her classes, she was quilting. When we were students together, we would sit in the back of the class and she would quilt while she would listen to a lecture. She said, but Kaplan, while she was a professor at Yale, after Banaji had left and gone on to Harvard, Kaplan had a terrible kitchen accident. She was washing this big crystal bowl in the sink, and while she was washing it, somehow it broke and it split her hand in two. The gash went all the way from her palm down to her wrist, cutting beyond the surface and subcutaneous tissue down into tendons and ligaments. And she said, I knew beyond the blood something was deeply wrong structurally with my hand. She said, I raced over to Yale New Haven Hospital. And as I exchanged words with the ER doctor that was dutifully taking me back to the room, she said, all I could think to tell him was, I'm a quilter and this hand is important. She said, after telling him that, and after expressing to him very clearly how important her quilting was, she said, the doctor patted me on the shoulder, reassured me, and started immediately stitching things up. And she said, as I watched him, not having his expertise, I trusted him. And she said, he was loving, he was smiling, he was doing good, dutiful work. It looked like a perfectly competent job to me. But at that moment, as he was stitching her up, someone spotted her, and it was a student of hers who was volunteering at the hospital. And the student said, Professor Kaplan, what are you doing here? Immediately, the ER doctor froze. He looked at Kaplan, and he asked where she taught. She said, I'm a Yale faculty member. And in that moment, everything changed. She was no longer a quilter, and yet she was. At that moment, she was a Yale faculty member and a professor. The hospital immediately tracked down the best-known hand specialists in New England. They brought in a whole team of doctors. There's a carnal side of me right now saying, even to myself, this is ridiculous. You are not a prejudiced person. You are not a biased person. You're better than this. Am I? Are you? We are human. This is a part of our spiritual evolution that Paul called being conformed into the image of Jesus. 
the willingness to let go of our defensive insecurities that are right now raging in a lot of you because there's nothing worse than being called prejudiced or a racist, a homophobe. The spirituality at least contains amongst its vital virtues the virtue of humility that caused a man named David to lift his voice one time and sing the soul's sonnet, Search Me, O God. Because I don't always do a good job of searching myself on these matters. Search me, O God, and you see if there's any wicked thing still hiding in me. Because the problem, the problem with self-righteousness and even the personal responsibility and self-introspection that all of us claim to do and try to do, certainly. The problem, Frederick Buechner said, with isolated introspection is that when you step back to look at yourself, you see everything except the part that stepped back. And the part that stepped back, J.W., is generally where all the stuff hides. That's why we have to live in community together. We have to have anecdotes like this. That's why I have to wear, as, as, as the pastor that has been a part of this church for 13 years, was in a small group, and I can tell the story. Founding pastor led the church through, took it all the way, and got the T-shirt that said human, just people, no labels. And I myself, as I told you a few months ago, found myself at the YMCA, Steve, with people looking at that shirt, and I remember thinking to myself, I hope they don't think I'm gay. A visceral response from a deeper layer inside of me that many of my gay friends share themselves. Our prejudices and biases are not only exacted against others, some of our harsh biases and prejudices are exacted against who? Even ourselves. We're calling no one evil. No one is being called a blatant racist or ageist or classist here today. We're simply saying if we're going to do the true work, the work that takes this the last mile, we're going to have to get past the victories of letting people no longer be slaves and breaking down Jim Crow laws and the magnanimity of letting a half of the human population have a right to vote. We're going to have to get past those blatant things and look for the more insidious hidden ways that still run through the fiber of our being that we don't recognize until we're standing there embarrassed leaning up against the wall in the YMCA thinking to ourselves where did that come from <laughs> where did that come from the hospital tracked down the best known hand specialist in New England she said, I went from being a quilter getting stitched up to a whole team of doctors surrounding me operating for hours and trying to save every, practically every last nerve. Why does a human being created in the image of God who's a quilter not deserve that kind of... Well, they did it because she was a professor. Well, professors don't need their hands nearly as much as quilters. Banaji says that she and Kaplan reflected on this later. Why did the doctor not call in a specialist right away? 
Somehow, it must be, Kaplan said, that the doctor was not moved, did not feel compelled to help an average woman who was a quilter in the same way as he was compelled by the two-word phrase, Yale professor. Kaplan told Banaji later, she said, I was able to go back to quilting, but she said, I have often wondered if I would have just been stitched up that day if I ever would have quilted again, because even now, after that vast team of doctors and the complicated surgery they performed, even now, she says, I feel an occasional twinge in my hand, and when I feel that twinge, it goes straight to my soul, and I ask myself, how do I do this to people? Greenwald and Banaji are not suggesting, nor am I. Nobody's saying here that we don't show people favor and that we don't help our friends, that we don't help our relatives and our neighbors. There, there's even an argument to make the light that shines the brightest at home shines the farthest. So we start with those that we love. I get it. This is not an accusation. This is not a ridiculous request that we disassociate from those in our immediate connected life and the familial systems that are immediate to us. We don't stop helping our friends and those closest to us, but what is being suggested here that at least in that moment of helping, we think about whom we're not helping. And we ask ourselves, do they have the same systems? Do they have the same opportunities? Do they have the same love? It was, it was the, the, the twinge that used to hit me increasingly as the little boy who lived in the white block house, the poor white block house in the corner that used to, I think, be a barn, but somehow it was turned into a house, and he lived there with his mother and three or four of his brothers and sisters, and he always told me he had never seen his dad. It was that feeling that I used to get every day when I would get off the bus and had to get a ball glove waiting on that dad that always played ball with me. It was that sense of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice and knowing that those are not consecutive sentences, those are concurrent. The weeping and the rejoicing go together. That always the fullness in my stomach and the, and the joy I get from it should be mitigated by the question, who is not full today? Even as a little boy, I knew with every pitch with this incredibly loving father, somehow I needed to remember in that rejoicing that there was weeping connected to this activity, that there was another boy just down the road that didn't even know his dad and never threw a baseball. The suggestion is not that we quit loving those closest to us, but that we remember someone named Jesus who stepped into a crowd one day and as he ministered to people that he didn't even know, his own mother stood on the outskirts of the crowd sending his brother into the crowd saying, hey, your mom is here, your family is here, quit tending to these people and tend to us. And Jesus turned and said, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. These are my mothers. In no way was Jesus denouncing the closeness that he had with Mary and his siblings. But he was proposing something there that's incredibly important for all of us to hear. It's that plaintive cry that rose from the guilty voice of Cain when he said, Am I my brother's keeper? Mixed with the question, 
born from the life of Jesus and exactly who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? How close do they have to be for me to concern myself with them? After reading the story about Kaplan, one relative of Greenwald's, the co-author of the book, a relative of his said, I decided to do something about it, just some little something, not imposed upon anybody else, but it's just me. She said, I, I used to donate a certain amount of money to my alma mater every year, and after reading this story, I decided to keep giving money to my alma mater, but to split the donation in half. And now she gives half to her alma mater every year and half to the United Negro College Fund. It's that moment of being responsible to your siblings and your family and those closest to you and yet looking at people you don't know and saying, these are my brothers and sisters. Blind spots. Surely by now all of us have taken those ocular tests where we find that place in our retina that does not receive light. You know, you got the little, you got the little plus sign there on the paper on the grid and two black spots beside it and you pull it in, pull it in, pull it in, pull it in with one eye covered and just about the time it gets five to six inches from your eye the little black dot on the right disappears. And it's amazing. Nina and I did it this morning. She lay there in bed and she kept like, it's just amazing. That something that blatant could just disappear. We not only have these blind spots in our retina, we have them in our souls. I can't tell you how many times I have sat in my 12-step meeting. For years I've been going to 12-step meetings and I cannot tell you how many times as I have felt Steve in those moments, insecure, broken, struggling, how many times I've just wanted to tell the people there a story about what I do. And yet in the anonymity of those places, the forfeiture of the last name is only an indicator, an allegory of something much bigger. We sit with people and we find common ground. And caste systems are kept out of the room because the qualifiers of where we live and what we do are not allowed in the room. The qualifiers of fellowship are simply the brokenness, the pains, the hurts, the joys of our own story. And it's amazing what happens in those magical places when our blind spots are admitted and are left at the door. I remember a year ago, uh, next month, I went out to the Hoffman Institute in uh, Napa Valley for eight days, I spent 16 hours a day in intense therapeutic work with a group of 24 people. And I remember as we were coming into that place, we had done days and days of pre-work and we came there, we were raw, we were open, we were ready for this incredible experience and it was an incredible experience that a year later, I don't know that I've ever had anything impact me like that. It's still a part of the fabric of the way I see things and move and operate. But we were told when we got there with our group of 24, 25 participants, we were told, just leave your identities, your vocational identities at the door and don't tell one another what you do. And for eight days, Mike, I was with 24 people and we all wore kind of, you know, just regular clothes and 
for, for eight days I was with a group of people and we did soul work together. We laughed, we cried, we let go of wounds, we dug into pain, we rejoiced. One day, the, the Thursday of the event, y'all can't imagine this, but we just, we had party day and all we did all day long was go back to our third grade self and just blow kazoos and string tinsel and have birthday parties. I thought it was the dumbest thing and for the first three hours I resisted because I was way too mature for that kind of thing but finally I yielded to it and by the end of the day after 12 hours man we, we even had a dance circle can you imagine we had a dance circle and wild music playing and every one of us had to get out in the middle and lead the group in a dance for one minute and they all had to dance the way we danced y'all are laughing because you can't imagine me doing it I'm going to push my... I'm going to show you what I did. No, I'm not. Man, we boogied and we danced and, and our souls... We, we connected at such a human level. Caste systems, stratifications... You couldn't help. I remember looking around the room often when my mind was wondering and when my soul was wanting to get distracted from the hard work. I would look around the room and I would try to figure out, I wonder what she does. I wonder where she fits into our caste system. I wonder what he does. And, and you even, in those distractions, you begin to play games and you finally have everybody figured out. And by the end of the week, we haven't told one another what we do, but we all know kind of where we fit by how well we talk or what our accent was or the things we talk about and by the end of the week at graduation we stand in front of the group and we pronounce our name and we say some things that are germane to what we've been doing that week that were very moving and then just as kind of an aside I thought it was an aside but it actually led to a therapeutic process going out of the place that was perhaps one of the most provocative of the, of the entire experience as an aside they say now you can tell everybody, everybody what you do and it was funny um, of the 24 I was in California you know around here you think everybody's Christian out there come to find out of the 25 of us it was just me and one other person that even had any connection to church the other people were just good people that they they think what we do is something like extraterrestrials and talking about Martians they had, just had no association with us but it, in the end when I told them um, Lucas I told them I said and I'm a pastor of a church <laughs> man they fell out of their chairs. They were cussing and spitting and saying, you got to be kidding me. And I thought to myself, what have I done this week that has... <laughs> my language, I... it was a potty mouth week for me. I hadn't got to cuss my whole life, so I just let it all out in therapy. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that was it. I still got a little inertia from that going, but it, it, it's, it's a therapeutic thing. And but the thing that I really wanted to say to you was going out of there after we figured out what one another did we only had again the inertia of that therapeutic process it only lasted around that subject for another 30 minutes to an hour as we all began to watch the lines 
the lines that we had kept out of the place, the ways of treating and acting the, the, the cool people, the uncool people. I literally watched with my own eyes, in my own soul, those lines begin to draw as we begin to treat one another. One young lady there, the entire week I had thought that she came from the wrong side of the tracks. I, I had thought that this was a girl that had dropped out. I, I kept asking myself all week long, how could she afford to be here? And you see the ways we think about people? How could she afford to be here? It had to be some act of benevolence by some kind person because I didn't think she talked very well, the way she looked, something about the way that she dyed her hair, her clothes. I, I just knew. I kind of pitied her all week long. And then she revealed something that a good part of the group already knew that she was a famous singer. Her husband was an even more famous singer. These were Grammy award-winning people and multimillionaires. And all of a sudden, my perspective on her shifted. And by conversations with her, became more engaged more concerned, more frequent. When she became a Yale professor instead of a mother who quilted, blind spots. We all have them. I'll close with this. I still profile people by gender, by economics, by culture. I don't mean to. I really don't. But that's no excuse. I do it. Are there statistical grounds that verify some of my profiling? Perhaps. But even if the numbers vindicate my presuppositions, I am more certain every day that whatever advantage or protection I gain by this subconscious practice, those gains pale in comparison to the soul-depleting losses I and the people I profile incur. As I said, I don't mean to do this, but that's not enough anymore. It is time for me to mean not to do this. I profile people by gender, by economics, by culture. I don't mean to, but that's no excuse. Are there statistical grounds that verify some of my profiling? Yes, perhaps, maybe, no. But even if the numbers vindicate my presuppositions, I am more certain every day that whatever advantage and whatever protection I gain by this subconscious pro profiling, this subconscious practice of profiling, I am convinced whatever gains, those gains pale in comparison to the soul-depleting losses I and the people I profile incur.
As I said, I don't mean to, but that's not enough. It is time for me to mean not to. Blind spots. We all have them. Can you say amen? And now can you say, oh me? Search us, oh God. Search me, oh God. See what I can't see. Search the part of me that steps back to introspect myself even this morning, for surely in that part that steps back is where all of my stuff mostly hides. Search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Know my heart today. Help us to see our blind spots, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, xenophobia, culturism, classism, Racism and genderism, four important subjects we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks.